verse that we will focus on out of our text that Cooper read earlier is Acts chapter 10, verse 34. My translation, the New International Version says, God does not show favoritism. 1,600 years ago, St. Augustine had this in mind for sure when he said, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. As we reflect on these today, our big idea is to go the extra mile, the last mile. Please bow with me. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Perhaps you remember the words of Jesus, which are recorded in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where he said, do not judge or you too will be judged. Yet why am I, we, so quick to make judgments and establish conclusions about other people whom we've never met? Maybe some of it's environmental, related to our family of origin, our upbringing. But our perception of other people might be somehow related to how we were created. I got this new book for Christmas called The Body by Bill Bryson. I'd read the book review and put it on my Christmas list. The author is a prolific one and also a former chancellor of Durham University in England. His book takes the reader, literally, on a head-to-toe tour of the miracle of the human body. Bryson starts off with the basic vocabulary of life, choir, you know, DNA, and then moves us through all the different systems that give us life, help give us life, keep us alive. But in reading the section on heads and faces, I learned some new insights. That the human face can make some 4,000 to 10,000 unique expressions. I did not know that. That there are more than 40 muscles, a significant portion of the body's total, that are involved in facial expressions. Babies, fresh from birth, are said to prefer a face, or even the general pattern of a face, as opposed to objects or other shapes. And that whole regions of the brain are devoted to recognizing faces. And that people are exquisitely sensitive to the subtlest alterations of mood or expression, even if we are all not always conscious of them. And the author also reminds us that there are six universal expressions seen in our faces. Fear, anger, surprise, pleasure, disgust, and sorrow. He says the most universal expression is a smile. Bryson writes, a true smile is the one expression we cannot fake. Don't you think that the world needs more of those? I see in our world Christians with scowls on their faces sometimes. Now, yes, we, um, we got stuff. 
And there are days where we don't really feel like smiling. But too many Christians walk around with a scowl on their face like they're angry. And I believe that we can change that with a smile. Babies recognize features like smiles and dimples, eyes, the shape and size of our face, the distance between our ears, and all of these kind of things. In Parent Magazine, one writer says, within a week after birth, your infant already recognizes your face since she depends on you for everything, and before long she'll be a face recognition expert. We are created with our own face recognition software. And babies, the writer uh, says, are more gifted than adults at picking out individual faces from groups of people. In studying this, I went to an expert, our own pastor, Amanda Lott, our pastor of families, children and families, and I talked with her about this. And here's what she says. And by the way, next Sunday while I'm in Charlottesville with our students, she'll be preaching. So I hope you'll be back to hear her. But she writes, My interpretation of all of this is that the relationship is very important for survival and for the developing brain. And babies can only have relationship with people, not objects. More than any other developing skill, relationship remains important for the entirety of a baby's life, she says, we are made to be in relationship with one another. And apparently, God made babies' brains to have the ability to recognize all people as those with whom we can have relationship. Babies are non-discriminatory. They just love you. All this is to say that over the years, as we grow into young adults and adults, we are certainly able to remember the amazing details in the people we see, but somehow we've twisted it. We have taken something which God created for good and used it to hurt others. We've turned our face recognition software into cliques and clubs and judgments and favoritism. We've become respecters of people. We show favorites. Let me share personally from my upbringing. Sometimes we can show favoritism and not even know it. Some of you know that my name is Robert Emmett Lee IV. Of course, when I heard those words as a young person, it was never good. My great-grandfather was Robert Emmett Lee I. He was a first-generation American. His parents came from Ireland. Our family settled in central Pennsylvania, and my great-grandfather was named for an Irish patriot, Robert Emmett. My great-grandfather named his son... Robert Emmett Lee II, so that's my grandpa. And then he named my dad, well, go figure, Robert Emmett Lee III, and I'm the fourth. On the screen is a picture of my grandfather in the middle, my 
dad and I flanking him on either side. My grandfather, by the way, died 20 years ago this month. He was a Eucharistic minister in the Catholic Church. He drove people to their cancer treatments and was wonderful about visiting parishioners in the hospital. But when I was three weeks old and we flew back from El Paso where I was born, Fort Bliss, and settled back outside of Philadelphia, right away my grandfather made a cardboard placard, long and rectangular, with the Roman numerals two, three, and four. Four in the middle. And from that point on, every time we got together, there was a picture made. Me in the middle, and two and three on the other sides. For three and a half years, I was an only child, and it was all good. I don't think I really knew what was going on. But then my brother Kevin came along, and every time we gathered and we were together as a family, my grandfather got the placard out, and my dad and I got in the picture, and there's not one picture of my brother like there was with me. Now, I don't think that there was any ill uh, intended in that. You know, families do things because families do things. There was no harm intended. But I often wonder now, looking back, if my brother didn't feel left out. Sometimes I wonder if my brother thought that I was the favorite. I don't think that was the case at all. But, you know, he and I have never really talked about it. So one of these days when we're together, I'm going to have to bring it up. You know, he'll, he might say, I'm so glad I didn't have to do that. But I don't know. We'll see. But there was a long-held understanding among the early followers of Jesus that God had favorites. You know, Christianity came from Judaism. It was an offshoot of Judaism. Jesus was Jewish. You know that. And as Christianity emerged in the early church, there was a belief by a number of Christians who were Jewish that you first had to become ceremonially a Jew, religiously, ritually a Jew, meaning going through all of uh, the requirements religiously to become a follower of Jesus. Now we know that came along and through the early church at the Jerusalem Council it was decided that one did not need to first become religiously a Jew in order to become a Christian. Otherwise, the Christianity would have continued to be a small offshoot of Judaism and would not be the global movement that it is today. But some thought that there were people who were in and people who were out. How would they reconcile those differences with people who had such deep-rooted beliefs? It's part of what we're doing on Wednesday evenings at Huguenot Road Baptist Church this January in our winter lecture series. So we're trying to understand how we can come together around the table and have dialogue with people with whom we differ and still maintain our unity and our focus for the gospel of Jesus Christ as Christian people. We see this play out in a number of places in the Bible with people coming together. And today it's the story of Cornelius 
the Roman centurion, a Gentile, and Peter, the apostle, a Jewish follower of Jesus. As the followers, if you study the book of Acts, as the followers of Jesus were persecuted in Jerusalem, many of them scattered. And the apostle Peter spent time sharing the gospel in Jerusalem, Samaria, and then he returned to Judea. In Judea, he ministered in a place called Lydda. That's circled in yellow on the map on the screen. And then he went to Joppa, which is circled in red on the Bible map, which was a major port city of Judea. You remember, that's where Jonah ran off to when he was running away from God. Luke reports that Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. That's in Acts 9.43. Meanwhile, there was a Gentile named Cornelius who lived in the city of Caesarea, a major international seaport located on the Mediterranean about 35 miles northwest of the city of Jerusalem. That's blue circled on your Bible map. Caesarea was also the headquarters of the Roman occupation in Palestine. Cornelius was highly regarded leader of the Italian regiment. In Acts, Luke reports that Cornelius and his family were devout and God-fearing people. They gave generously. They prayed to the God of Israel regularly, but they did not know the full understanding of of Jesus. They only knew in part. And one day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which was one of the appointed hours for prayer, Cornelius had a vision from God. And the angel told Cornelius that God was pleased with his prayers and his gifts to the poor, the things good that he did. And then the angel told Cornelius to send some of his men to the city of Joppa and that they would return to Caesarea with a man named Peter. The angel even told Cornelius that Peter would be found staying at the home of Simon the Tanner. So Cornelius got his men together, told them everything, and sent them to Joppa to find Peter. About noon the next day, when the men were getting close to the city, Peter was up on the roof of the house where he was staying. It was about noon, one of the other appointed times for prayer. He became hungry and fell into a trance. As he had a dream where heaven opened up and showed a sheet being lowered down to earth by its four corners, it contained all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds. And the voice said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter sure about this it happened three times and then the vision went away and we understand that God gave this vision to Peter to help him to see that there was uh, the gospel was not bound to the religious regulations and ceremonies of Judaism but rather open to all the Gentiles when Peter was wondering about this The men sent by Cornelius arrived at the house gate, and just then the Spirit of God told Peter that the men were looking for him and that he was to go with them and not to hesitate. So he welcomed them in as guests, and they stayed over the night. And then the next day, Peter joined them for the 35-mile or so trip from Joppa to, to Caesarea where Cornelius stayed. And what happened next was pivotal for the future of Christianity. Cornelius and Peter both experienced breakthrough moments. Each had an epiphany when their eyes were open to new things. When God showed them something new. There was a transformation. 
That's what the season of Epiphany is about. Uh, this understanding of God enlightening us and showing us new things and helping us to be transformed. Cornelius said, Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything that the Lord has commanded you, Peter, to tell us. So we're ready. We want to hear. Our ears are open. Cornelius would become the first Gentile convert to Christianity. He and his entire household were saved and received baptism. They were forgiven of their sins in the name of Jesus. God changed their hearts. And then Peter, he writes... I now realize, verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. I now implies that Peter had a then. Have you thought about that? Think about your life. Think about what you know now of Jesus, how he has changed you. Think about your past, and then you can connect. When we say, I now realize that means we had a then. Peter had a then. He had a limited understanding of the gospel. And now he says, I now realize that God has not limited the gospel to one small family or group of people. God had changed his perspective. Neither Cornelius nor Peter would ever be the same. Each had a new worldview. It would be like seeing planet Earth as those early astronauts saw from outer space. Peter says God does not show partiality. And that means that there's no favoritism, no preferential treatment. No one on this earth gets more love from God than any other person. No favorites. The Greek word translated partiality or favorites or respecter of persons is, it's long, hang with me, prosopolemptes. Okay? Prosopolemptes translates partiality, respecter of persons, when we see something and we hold judgment, right? And it says God is not that. It renders a Semitic idiom that literally means God is not the one who receives human faces only. God doesn't just glance at our faces and make a snap judgment. We were born that way. We were born with the ability to differentiate faces. But as we grow, God desires that we know the person. This word is saying that God does not just simply look at our face, the exterior, that God looks at the whole person. God doesn't stop with the externals. God looks deep within. Do you remember what God said to Samuel? The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the what? The heart. Think of the last time that you were at a busy train station or airport or bus station or concert. You remember the sea of faces around you. And if you're like me, I'm sorry to say, but sometimes I'll look around a crowd and then I'll start to make judgments. Well, that person has this, that person's wearing that, that person looks like this. And before you know it, I am a respecter of persons. And I pray that God will help me not to be a respecter of persons, but to respect people as God has called us to do. 
See, the human mind is a remarkable calculating engine, one writer says. It draws so many conclusions in an instant of time. It makes judgments we're scarcely aware of. You don't think about it. It just happens, right? But we pigeonhole people into categories, labeling as a a foreigner or a native-born or rich or poor or lazy or hardworking or dangerous or benign. And these happen in a moment. And if we do that, we have done what Peter says God never does. We've received human faces. We've made a multitude of judgments based on very little information at all. We've taken something that's partial and fragmentary, like just a person's outward appearance, and we have made judgments about the whole. And human love can do that. Human love can can be partial. So many mixed motives affect our love for other people, self-interest, pride, uh, all these things, and we uh, give out partial love. Some examples of that. When we love the lovable, that's partial. When we love the lovable. You know, isn't it easy to love the lovable? Can you think about the lovable people in your lives? Right? They're easy to love. Yeah, happy to have y'all come over. Looking forward to the holidays. Right? But does God call us only to love the lovable? No. When Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, he didn't add a codicil, which is like an amendment or an addendum. That is if your neighbor happens to be lovable. We're called to love unlovable people too. You know, one of the most beautiful examples of complete love that I see, and that's caregivers, people who devote their whole life and time and schedule to being a caregiver. It happens a lot of different ways. It's a beautiful gift of loving that is complete. There's another incomplete love or partial love that's reciprocal love. That's a kind of love that says, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. It's conditional. Something for something. This for that. In the news, you've heard it called quid pro quo. That's what that means. This for that. Something for something. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And God's love is not that. Lots of human relationships are conditional, aren't they? We are in sometimes marriages where there's scorekeeping. And eventually this kind of love breaks down because there's never an even exchange. In in marriage, is it always 50-50? No. Often... More often than not, one is called to do more than the other, and it flip-flops. In true love, there are times that one or the other must give more than the other. And then the other kind of partial love is controlling love. Some of you have been in relationships where a person was controlling. Some of you know controlling kind of people. 
And if we're not careful, we can kind of want our way, and, and uh, love can be something that we give and then we take it away. We give silent treatment. I'm not going to speak to you until I'm ready. And that's controlling love. Or withholding love. Well, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to do the things that I usually do for you because I want you to suffer for a little while. Or I'm not going to give nice things to you until you shape up. That's controlling love. It falls so short of the full measure of love, which is the biblical idea. So if these are, are partial forms of love, then what does complete love look like? And the answer, I believe, is simply to love as Jesus loves. Jesus gets this at this when he says, love your, na- your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that's difficult. Dr. Bill Tuck, who led our deacons retreat yesterday, has written a book called Different, Difficult Sayings of the Bible. And we did a study on that here last fall. And Dr. Tuck in his book says, why should I love my enemy? And his response is this. If you respond to a person who dislikes you with the same attitude he or she is directing toward you, you'll soon find that your life is poisoned from within. He says, hatred is a self-destructive attitude. And that we need to, take, to make a distinction between hating things and hating people. He says, why should we love our enemy? We love our enemy because love is the only power that can change our enemy, making them whole. Love, he writes, is the only power that can change an enemy into a friend. Somehow, we've gotten away from that in this world. And I believe the church can get back to that. But it doesn't happen if we just stay here and expect people to come to us, right? Somehow, the church in North America, the Western church, has gotten smug, has a sense of entitlement, complacency. We're kind of like the department store, Sears, and JCPenney, Jacques Penney, as I understand it, uh, Kmart, Macy's, Toys R Us, Circuit City, shopping malls. They are struggling now. Some of them are not even in business because they continue to do things as they had for in the past. They did not adapt and change. And then came along Amazon. And just about every retailer is trying to figure out how to compete in this new world of e-commerce. But it teaches a lesson to us that we cannot just wait for people to drive by, see the sign, the pretty building, and come on in. And then they become like us, dress like us, talk like us, act like us, and so forth. Uh, Rather, we must figure out how to share the good news where they are, going where they are. Some of those successful retailers have figured this out, but it comes at a cost. It's expensive. One of the problems in today's e-economy is what's called the last mile problem. In today's journey from warehouse to customer doorstep, the last mile of delivery is the most expensive. It's the last mile of that hot meal that Panera is bringing to you. The last mile of that hot cup of Starbucks that is on its way through a Postmates delivery service or Uber Eats kind of mentality. And when it finally arrives, uh, there it is. But it came at such a cost. 
Business Insider reports that the last mile delivery costs are substantial, comprising 53% of the entire cost of delivery. They compete, they uh, try to uh, compensate with crowdsourcing, driverless vehicles, controlled drop-off sites with passcodes so that people can get packages to the upstairs. Postmates, anything, anytime, anywhere. There's even use of drones to get things to places and even robotics for that nice venti vanilla latte. Thank you. Thank you, Jake, so very much. Um, this is concussion. Jake Rouse back there. This, this robot won fourth place in the international robotics competition. Jake's one of our youth from Bird High School and is driving it today. Thank you, Jake. Thank you for this. Now, if businesses are doing this kind of thing to reach people with their products, shouldn't we be willing to go the extra mile in that last mile? When we leave church, when we go to our neighborhoods, when we go to eat somewhere after service, when we go home, when we go to our schools, that we would be willing to go the extra mile, the last mile, and truly make a difference. For that to happen, I believe we need to do two things. Write this down. One, we need to be open-eyed. That's epiphany. That means that we are ready like Cornelius to be taught, ready like Peter to learn something new, that we are to be open-eyed, seeing the needs of the people who are around us and being willing to share Christ with them in a way that would be most productive, not confrontational or adversarial, but most caring, compassionate, and productive. Empathetic. And second, be mission-minded, that we would have it in our mind that we are called as disciples to go, therefore, into all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything God has commanded. That we would be open-eyed and mission-minded. And that we would be willing to go the extra mile, that last mile. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your love for us, which is unconditional and none judgmental. You are not a respecter of persons. You don't show favorites. Thank you that you've created us in your image and that when you see us, you see you. You, you see us not complete, not whole, and, and broken, but there's, there's that part of us in us that you see that's you. Help us remember that as we seek to be open-eyed and mission-minded here at Huguenot Road Baptist Church. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>